This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Artist studios, exhibition space, and more. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. You know how lots of times celebrities end up marrying other celebrities? It's a power play a lot of the time, this way to merge two bright and shiny people into one bright and shiny partnership. Now, I, for one, cannot speak to this kind of relationship unless you count two professional independent podcasters as a celebrity couple, which would be delusional. But I've also thought that the whole celebrity relationship thing is probably built for many on one additional aspect, understanding. Famous people who live their lives in the limelight understand the pressures, the worries, the pleasures, the pain. You would just get each other's lives and careers in a way that 99% of the world just wouldn't. But if you are involved with someone who isn't intimately familiar with what fame entails, well, that just might end up being a liability in the relationship. Even though celebrities can marry one another and all can be peachy, Even when two well-known and well-appreciated individuals come together, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is automatically a match made in heaven, right? Sometimes, no matter what, it can end up being a match made in hell. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. Art Curious Season 13 is all about modern love. And today we're homing in on one of the lustiest and misogynistic artists of the 20th century. And while I had many a lady love of his to choose from, there's one artist who most keenly seems like this icon's modern love match at least for a brief time. Today, we're discussing the lives and loves of Pablo Picasso and Dora Maar. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. How do you choose which of Picasso's wives or lovers to discuss in a season all about relationships in art history? I really had almost a dozen to choose from, perhaps more. But ultimately, I felt I had to go with Dora Maar because she was an artist too, a well-known, respected artist, and one who was working actively years before she ended up dallying with Signor Picasso. Dora Maar was born in 1907 as Henriette Theodora Markovich, the daughter of a French mother and a Croatian father who all lived in Paris together. Papa Markovic, an architect, moved the family to Buenos Aires for work, and it was there that the future Dora Mar was raised before she opted to return to Paris in 1926 at the age of 19 to pursue an education and experience in the fine arts. Henriette, you see, or Henriette perhaps, 
wanted to paint. And of course, there were no better art schools in the world than in Paris. So she settled there, taking classes at a wealth of studios and ateliers. The Central Union of Decorative Arts, the School of Photography, the École de Beaux-Arts, the Académie Julien, and even the atelier of André Lotte, a French cubist painter. But it was a meeting with the photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson that truly changed her life. Cartier-Bresson, who was one of the most famous photographers of the 20th century, mingled with Henriette at Lotte's studio, and in conversation, he ultimately suggested two things to the burgeoning artist. First, she should try photography. She might really like it and would probably be really good at it. And second, she should consider shortening her name to something a little snappier. And thus, Dora Marr, as we would know her, officially was born. The next decade of Dora Marr's life proved to be one of the most formative and most fascinating. And it makes sense to note that several books have been written just about her during this pre-Picasso phase, because the woman herself and her many interests are truly fascinating. She mingled in Paris with pals in the surrealist art community, became an ardent socialist involved with the anti-capitalist group October. She mixed and mingled with lifelong friends like poets André Bresson and Paul Eluard. So shout back to our first episode of the season on Max Ernst and Dorothea Tanning. And also keep a pin in Paul Eluard because we will be coming back to him in a moment. And she was hanging out with other painters and surrealists like Jacqueline Lambda. She shared a photography studio with another incredibly famous photographer, Brassai. She was Man Ray's studio assistant and model. She got an in as a fashion photographer, creating these truly gorgeous spreads and advertisements, all while upping her game as a fine art photographer. I mean, this lady was incredible. By the mid-1930s, Dora Marr was firmly established in the world of the French avant-garde, living her best life, experimenting with photographic techniques that were at the forefront of the medium, doing things like creating double exposures and superimpositions, playing with angles and perspective, and forming odd and awe-inspiring collages and photomontages. Surrealism continued to conjure inspiration for Marr, and her black and white images, I think, still beguile and even confuse us today. Her most famous piece is probably a photograph that Marr titled Père Ubu, after a character in the absurdist play Ubu Roi by Alfred Jarry, which is a satirical take on Shakespearean dramas like Hamlet and King Lear. Now, a quick bit of background if you are new to Jarry's work, as I am. The title character, Ubu, is this terrible dictator whose failings and faults are actually manifested in his outward appearance, so it begets this monster rather than a man. Written in 1896, Ubu Roi was ahead of its time and subsequently became very beloved within Dada and Surrealist circles. So Dora Maar is not alone in her admiration for this bizarre piece of literature. But she still created one of the most iconic takes on the character with Père Ubu. This black and white image is a close-up, really oddly angled view of a creature, which is probably a fetal or baby armadillo, whom Mar has posed almost head-on so that its bulbous head and floppy ears take center stage, 
followed closely by the animal's curved, clawed forearms. Mar never actually revealed the source of her image. Scholars believe that it is indeed an armadillo. But what is known for sure is that this work was sensational. It became almost a kind of surrealist calling card, was reproduced in art magazines and journals, and seen on postcards throughout Europe. And for me, it is the perfect Dora Maar photograph. Mysterious, disturbing, a work that pulls upon a well of horrors beneath it. A smart and knowing wink to the art consumed by the cool kids, of which we can certainly count Dora Maar as one. But that cool kid's life was about to change, big time, and not necessarily for the better. That's coming up next, right after this quick ad break. Reminder that you can join us over on Patreon for a few bucks a month and get the show ad-free. Patreon.com slash ArtCurious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. In late 1935, Dora Maar was at the height of her photography career, using her spare time to create these mind-bending and eye-catching works, like Le Simulateur, where she manipulates both the subject, an acrobat, and the setting around him into a nightmarish scene. She was also still using her awesome skills to get more straightforward work which is how she found herself working as an on-set photographer for films like Jean Renoir's The Crime of Monsieur Lange. On set one day, she spotted a man with piercing eyes, his hair parted severely to one side, and just beginning to be streaked with gray. And she knew immediately who he was. He was Pablo Picasso, a man whose name had become synonymous with modern art for the better part of 30 years at this point. How could anyone in the art world not know who Picasso was by the mid-1930s? He was the artist who broke art wide open with cubism, who continued to poke and prod at its seams to produce some of the most enduring works of the first half of the 20th century. He also produced a lot of broken hearts and broken homes along the way. I'm not sure if Dora Maar knew that when she first spotted the artist on that film set, but if she did she perhaps chose to ignore any pangs of doubt or warning. He caught her eye, and she wanted to have him. Here on Art Curious, we've covered Pablo Picasso a few times. 
first in his rivalry with Henri Matisse, returning again to him in our shock art season to discuss his 1907 breakthrough work, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, and again in discussing his Les Femmes d'Alger in our episodes about the most expensive works ever sold at auction. You can tell by the themes here that I am going for both art history and juicy art gossip a lot of the times, both of which are rife with material when it comes to Picasso. And so I'm not going to cover a whole lot of his biography today, since that's something we have tracked a few times on the show. But what I haven't talked about much is Picasso's infamous relationships with women. And there is a lot that can be said. So much. Probably too much. But the fact of the matter is that it really ain't pretty. Picasso was a rampant misogynist, an egoist, even a sadist, according to some. The plain truth is that he didn't treat women all that well, and his biography is littered with the names of women he wronged and the tragedy of their responses to him. Olga Koklova, his first wife, whom he painted as a grotesque in works like The Bust of a Woman with Self-Portrait, where Olga is seen as a screaming succubus, a cartoon-like pink mass over whose shoulder the shadow of Picasso as a framed silhouette literally hangs. Picasso, by the way, refused to divorce Olga even though they parted ways in the early 1930s because of that old chestnut, the whole not wanting the wife to get half your stuff excuse. Their marriage only officially ended when Olga died in the 1950s. So, that's nice. And then there's Jacqueline Roque, Picasso's second wife, who was involved with the artist for the last 11 years of his existence, after having met him when he was in his early 70s and she in her mid-20s. She was so warped by their relationship that after the artist's death in 1973, she forbade members of the extended Picasso family, including his children Claude and Paloma, from attending his funeral. And though she went on to live for more than a decade past her husband, she never fully escaped him. And it is believed that her grief over their relationship drove her to commit suicide in the 1980s. And she wasn't the first. The tragic Marie-Thérèse Walter, who was considered Picasso's so-called golden muse and one of his most famous mistresses, also took her own life, as did Picasso's grandson. So it's safe to say that no one was left unscarred, really. Marina Picasso, the artist's granddaughter, put it best in her 2001 memoir, Picasso, My Grandfather. In it, she writes, quote, No one in my family ever managed to escape from the stranglehold of his genius. He needed blood to sign each of his paintings. My father's blood, my brother's, my mother's, my grandmother's, and mine. He needed the blood of those who loved him. But this is really unromantic of me to share all of this before really introducing the relationship between Picasso and Dora Maar. And for that, I do apologize. But also, it's just really hard for me to see that charming romantic side of the artist when so much ink has been spilled about his awfulness. What's fascinating, though, is that their relationship began with blood being spilled. Literally. They didn't actually meet on that day on the Jean Renoir movie set. They officially met several days later, after being introduced by Paul Elouard at the famous Café Les Deux Majeaux in Paris, where legend has it 
that Dora Maar caught Picasso's attention by playing that carnival-style knife game where she splayed her fingers out and stabbed at the table between them. According to Francois Gillot, who was another one of Picasso's lovers, who later wrote about the scene, Dora Maar occasionally missed, whether it be on accident or on purpose, that part we may never know. And so she cut her fingers, soaking her gloves in her own spilled blood. Picasso approached her after watching what she was doing and said, could he keep her now-ruined gloves? And she agreed. And thus, the relationship began and carried on for nine years. Not that Picasso, at the very least, was faithful to Dora and Dora only. When the pair met, not only was he still married to Olga Koklova, but he was also having affairs with several other women, including the surrealist poet Alice Palin, Valentine Hugo, who was André Breton's former mistress, and Marie-Thérèse Walter, who some consider to be the antithesis of Dora Maar. Whereas Marie-Thérèse was actually rather innocent when she met Picasso, Dora had been worldly, cultured. That intellectual challenge that Dora had was one of the things that drew Picasso to her, and he apparently used this to his advantage, outwardly comparing the two women to their faces to undermine their confidences and to inspire feelings of competition in them. Picasso thrived when he triggered jealousy in others. But of course, it wasn't all bad. It couldn't have been all bad to go on for so many years. And Picasso and Marr acted as mutual muses for one another. For better or for worse, we know that the women in Picasso's lives were his muses. But here, too, Dora Marr gets a turn at the glory, creating wonderful images of Picasso, her lover. Her gorgeous black and white pictures of him are stunning, straightforward, and yet very skillfully produced. And it's not just her portraits of the artist that are fascinating, but her documentation of him and his work, too. Marr was a witness to the making of Picasso's incredible piece, his 1937 masterwork, Guernica, at a point when no one else was allowed to see it. Marr recorded the artist at work on this piece, creating an indelible record and resource and works of art simultaneously. At the same time, the lovers also inspired one another and shared their own artistic gifts. Picasso inspired Dora Maar to take up painting again, and it's really kind of fun to see paintings of hers, like her 1936 pastel Portrait of Pablo Picasso, which presents him in a Cubist-inspired style that is so reminiscent of Picasso's works themselves. It's almost like Picasso has been Picassoed here. Likewise, Picasso took up photography and experimented with new types of printmaking under her tutelage. Both artists expanded their worlds and their oeuvres with the help of one another. In the annals of art history and in popular imagination, though, it is, of course, Picasso who benefited the most from their partnership. Dora Maar not only became his muse, one in a long line of lovers whose visage he put to canvas, but she also became one of his most iconic and recognizable faces. She became Picasso's so-called weeping woman. We'll get to that and all of its implications right after a break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... 
That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Art Curious. The Weeping Woman isn't just one work of art. It's a whole series of paintings that was conceived around the same time and within the same vein as Guernica. And indeed, one of the key figures in Guernica is a weeping woman. The two really cannot be separated. The Weeping Woman is a response, as Guernica is, to the Spanish Civil War that broke out in 1937 and so scarred Picasso, being a native Spaniard. He knew he wanted to create an image of a devastated woman, a heartbreaking and heartbroken mother, perhaps. And he needed a model. So naturally, he went to Dora Maar. According to the catalog entry about the weeping woman that is now in the collection of the Tate in London, there's something interesting about these images of Dora Maar as the weeping woman, because they mark an important transition, not only in Picasso's imagery of Maar herself, but in their relationship kind of like a turning point. Previous to creating The Weeping Woman, Picasso's portraits of Mar had been kinder, or at least softer in some ways, if such a word can actually be used to describe what are still rather prickly, jagged portraits, like his 1937 portrait of Dora Mar, now in the Musée Picasso in Paris. The Weeping Woman, though, she is all about pain. Dora Mar identifiable in Picasso's works by her long, dark hair, is rendered in that typical Cubist style. We see her open mouth, her teeth in a painful grimace, shown through hands that are simultaneously depicted as covering up those teeth, while another hand dabs at the corner of that mouth with a handkerchief. Mar's face is made blotchy with yellows, greens, and purples, and a very strangely bright and jaunty hat, bedecked with a red flower, sits incongruously on her head. This image of Dora Maar became, for the artist, the epitome of her. In her 1964 book, Life with Picasso, Françoise Gillot recalled Picasso's thoughts on Dora Maar, writing, quote, An artist isn't as free as he sometimes appears. It's the same way with portraits I've done of Dora Maar. I couldn't make a portrait of her laughing. For me, she is a weeping woman. For years, I've painted her in torture forms, not through statism, but not through pleasure either, just obeying a vision that forced itself on me. Without any say, Dora Maar had forever become Picasso's weeping woman, and she didn't like it, with good reason. She later proclaimed, quote, all Picasso's portraits of me are lies. They're Picasso's. Not one is Dora Maar. British art historian John Richardson, one of the premier experts on Pablo Picasso, once wrote a compelling examination of the Weeping Woman images and postulated that they might have just as much to do with Dora Maar's experiences at Picasso's hands as it did with the attack on Guernica. 
Picasso was apparently not only emotionally abusive and unfaithful, but also physically violent with Marr and others as well. As their relationship progressed, things between them worsened, eventually leading Marr to experience a psychological breakdown when their relationship dissolved in the mid-1940s. Her portrait of the weeping woman then, though Dora Marr considered it a lie, might have at least some kernels of truth when viewed in this perspective. As Richardson writes, quote, The source of Dora's tears was not Franco, meaning General Francisco Franco, the Spanish dictator, but the artist's traumatic manipulation of her. I'm left to wonder how much, if any, long-term effects from his relationship with Dora Mar are actually visible in Picasso's works. He seems, as always, to have jumped over to a new muse, Francois Gillot and Jacqueline Roque in particular, and he may have carried on with Marie-Thérèse Walter for at least a while, especially since the two shared a daughter, Maya. I get the feeling that Picasso wasn't too big on self-reflection, though I might be wrong, and he was probably equally disinterested in self-flagellation. So he may have moved on from his tormented relationship with Dora Marr rather unscathed. Marr, though, was not as lucky. As I mentioned previously, she suffered an emotional collapse that was concurrent with her break from Picasso, though the deaths of her mother and sister during the same period also played a serious role. When she recovered and was finally released from her treatment facility, she moved to a home in the south of France to begin life anew. But even then, scars remained. During their time together, after the initial mutual obsession wore off, Picasso began to grow increasingly critical of Dora Marr's artistic output, eventually declaring to her that photography as an artistic medium was not a worthy use of her time, nor a worthy pursuit for any artist. Remember that Dora was not only an extremely gifted photographer, but also an important and experimental one. And this statement was akin to calling her life's work, and thus possibly her life, meaningless. Picasso didn't encourage Marr to stop creating entirely, but convinced her that it was painting that was the grandest art, the highest art form. Which for me is something very akin to that age-old argument of Paragone that we've talked about a few times on the podcast. This concept of one art form being somehow better than another. But instead of pitting painting and sculpture against one another, Picasso argued for the supremacy of painting here over photography. And Dora, unfortunately, felt compelled to give in. The good news, though, is that she was a good painter, always had been. And so pursuing a creative path in this way was not a terrible option. Throughout the second half of her life, far away from Picasso, she did indeed paint, moving gradually further and further away from representing the world around her and deeper into abstraction. Many of these works, though, she seemed to have kept for herself. It wasn't until her death in 1997 at age 89 that a great cache of paintings was discovered in her Paris apartment. It was a startling find that led to a gradual renaissance in our understandings of Dora Maar as an artist, as a person, someone far greater than the reductive concept of her as a muse, as the weeping woman. She loved Picasso once, yeah, 
that part is true. But she shone brightly both before and after their ill-fated relationship. And the world has finally begun to realize that. With exhibitions dedicated to her works flourishing across the globe over the last 20 years, with big shows in Barcelona, in Munich, in Paris, and beyond, including a landmark show in 2019 at the Tate Modern in London. Picasso and Marr both influenced one another and gained artistic experience at each other's hands. But I, for one, am so happy to know that the time has truly come to experience Dora Marr, a true survivor, on her own terms and outside Picasso's overbearing shadow. Next time on Art Curious, we are heading into nearly uncharted territory with a love triangle for the modern ages. And no, it's not Gala and Paul Eluard and Max Ernst again. It's actually way bigger than that. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Madison Jones for her great writing and research help for this episode. The Art Curious theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our podcast is co-produced by Kabunki. Podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support, and you can join us on Patreon for the price of a cup of coffee. Check back with us soon as we explore more of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful modern art lovers in art history. <laughs>